Olala, the podcast is brought to you in association with Expedia. Expedia offers thousands of hotel deals to suit all tastes and budgets. From bed and breakfast, affordable hostels, five-star hotels and everything in between. There is something for everyone. Just go to expedia.co.uk to find your ideal place to stay. Hello and welcome to Olala Podcast with me, Fred Sirix. Olala. I just had a big grin on my face as I said Olala. It happens every time I say or hear it. And what's really interesting to me is that the same happens when others say or hear it. It's like we are all conditioned with the same reaction to the sound of this word. Let me do it again. Listen. Olala. You see, it works. I think it's because it's kind of naughty, isn't it? It's like a feel-good sensation you get as you hear it, and the brains just can't help but to react positively to it, and we just smile automatically and without even thinking about it. It makes you light on your feet, it makes you feel awake, because it is pure pleasure and goodness. Life can be so hard, so unpredictable, and we all have our share of pain, but Olala takes it away in a flash. For me, it encapsulates what Socrates was saying. The meaning of life is about the pursuit of virtue, basically knowing what is good and bad, right and wrong. And Olala brings about the best in people. You know, in the end, what matters is our relationship with others and whether there is trust. And this is what I am seeking here, a special encounter, life in all its beauty. Olala, that's so exciting. And today, I have no other than the Elvis Presley of chef, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon, how are you? Fuck me. Elvis Presley of chefs, uh, what can I say? Olala. <laughs> you get away with that sentence because you have that beautiful French twang, ooh-la-la. When an Englishman says ooh-la-la, it sounds terrible, but you seem to put this beautiful tone to it. But you say it very well, I have to say that. Well, j'habite en France uh, depuis trois ans. Um, I speak a little French, as you know. A little bit, uh, yeah. And so France for me was my, was my foundation. Ooh-la-la? Yeah, it was more than ooh-la-la because it was a foundation that set me up for the rest of my life. I think of the position at the age of 22, being on my ass, no money, a shitty divorce going at home with mum and dad, still reeling in from the hurt uh, of not playing football, obsessed with what I've just learned from Le Gavoche under Albert uh, Roux, still excited about what Marco taught me. And so at the age of 22, I, I was ready to conquer France. In fact, I became French in a way that I was smitten, taken back, and obsessed with becoming French. And so my first job, as you know, was at Guy Savoir. And so when you're working with a chef that's traveling from two to three stars, it's one of the most exciting opportunities in anyone's career. And I was the only Brit. But there was something quite magical going on with Guy, uh, or Monsieur Savoir, I should say, um, because he was traveling at a thousand miles an hour. So... What do you mean, faster than you are? It wasn't uh, faster than I am. It was just he was, he was what I wanted to be because he was super generous. He had an amazing amount of control under pressure, and his level of excitement with food was a lighter style of excitement. So it was where we started that uh, bar mix in terms of frothing things. And so um, that was in 1992, and that's how that amazing dish uh, that I put together, which was a bit of a signature dish to begin with, that cappuccino haricot blanc, cappuccino white beans uh, with grated white truffle, that was a la Savoir. So every time I hear anyone or anybody speak French, then I'm dying to do it. And, and it's something that I've also asked all the kids, uh, learn 
to speak French. It's an amazing asset to have because you never know where you are in the world, where you'll bump into someone French that is dying to speak with you in French. And it's such a lovely uh, language. And also, I remember having a French girlfriend and she asked me, your French is so good. What part of France do you come from? And I said, Glasgow. And she went, ooh la la. Ooh la, I, la did she? I don't know where Glasgow is. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a young chef now, would you go back to France to learn your trade? Absolutely, without a doubt. Um, I had an 18-month waiting period. Were you getting paid when you were working there? Yeah, it was a, what they call there was a salaire de SMIC, which was a standardized salary from the government. City uh, 4,000 francs France, yeah. uh, yeah. a month. So what is that? So that's 400 pounds a month, 100 pounds a week. My accommodation was 4,500 francs. So I was in debt before I even started work. But it wasn't about being in debt. It was about the knowledge that was I was packing into becoming a good chef. And what was it like being, you were the only English in this yeah. uh, kitchen. What oh, was yeah. it like? It was tough, very tough. You work twice as hard. You're in first, out last. We had one day off on a Sunday, and then we had to take half day off during the week. And so I had a little job at the Café Bastille on my Sunday, so I improved my French way more rapid. I got my chef de parties badge within the first six months of being there, so I got a, a bigger salary. Where does it come from, this work ethic that you have? Mum, mum is a, an amazing ambassador because I grew up watching her work twice uh, a day. Um, she had a day job as a cook in a little restaurant in Stratford-on-Avon, and then in the evening, she'd go and work as a night nurse. Christmas Day, we could never start celebrating until midday, and she came back from her night shift. So when you grow up with that, you don't think anything different. And so you take that from her. You take that quality of the respect that she had to put clothes on our back. And she to, was leading from example. Yeah, and also, you know, Dad was dreaming about becoming a rock star um, and traveling the world to no consequence, you know. And so, you know, he would go off and... Every other day, there was someone knocking on the door looking for money or looking for my dad. And so mum was saying, look, I'll be paying it next week. And she had two jobs. So as a son, you, you admire that tenacity. And then that's food, isn't it? Because food's hard work. You don't get anywhere in food, whether you want to run a pub or run a restaurant. You don't get anywhere. If you want to do quality, no. Yeah, exactly that. And it's, too, it's just too easy to be average because average is not what we're on this planet for. And so I had a big hurt in football early on in my life. And so But what happened there? What did you play for? I, I was involved in county football. Then I got invited up for a trial at the Lazar Rangers. I was with their youth team and I was loving it, uh, heading towards my 18th birthday and sort of pretty much guaranteeing a potential career. I had a horrific accident in a tackle, smashed my cartilage. I came back from that three months later and then I tore my crucial ligament. So I sort of, I had two big knocks uh, and I was naturally left-footed, so I was out. And so I think what I was trying to say, if I didn't have that hurt of that dream being taken away, that gave me added, I suppose, added uh, not just passion, but it gave me a second bite of the cherry. And mum said, don't ever sit and cry over spilt milk. Go and look for the next cow. And she was absolutely right. And that was coming from your mum at 16, 17 years of age. And you did find some cows. And I, I found a few cows. And so I, I suppose I, I put my head down and, and worked hard. But I, I, I take food very seriously. I've spent the last three decades chasing it. So even if I'm not creating it, if I find it and taste it, I want to match what I'm tasting. And I think that's the excitement about food. I mean, we've been traveling very recently. We sure. were all over America. And uh, what I found very inspiring is your approach to restaurants. So we go out and you are there and you don't miss a bit. You see it all. You see the restaurant, the, the whole restaurant, but you see all the little details. And I can see you're making mental notes, you're taking pictures. 
and you're looking for that little bit of veg that you can bring back in your own restaurant, don't you? Yeah, I think restaurants are theatre today, and so there are too many customers that really understand good food, so we have to work harder at making it more special for them. But, I mean, sometimes chefs are a little bit sniffy about embracing the talents in America because they think it's all about uh, big, bold portions and, and very little finesse. My God, I've been working over here for the last 15 years, and if there's one thing they've taught me is how to scale a restaurant, whether it's something to do with uh, beautiful mac and cheese or the most amazing uh, prime-age ribeye, you know, I want to learn. And so the day I want to stop learning is, I think, the day I'd like to give up because I, I, I can't wait. I'm like a magpie. I see something shiny in a restaurant. I can't wait to take it back. Now with a phone, I can take a picture of it and say, hey, guys, Look at this. Um, guess what they're doing here with their lobster? You know, guess what they're frying it in? Guess what they're doing you know, with their steaks? And look at, the, look at the way they're grilling these things. So I feed that back to the HQ back in the UK. But you don't just look at food. You no. look at everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. From the minute we walk in to the way they present the bill, to the cleanliness of the toilets, just to how many waiters do or do not knock my chair. You know, there's something that people don't, don't know about you, but um, you are very good at making people feel good. I know that every time we get into a taxi or we meet somebody, you ask people their name, you shake their hands, and you have warm words for them, you look at them in the eyes, you smile, and you make people feel at ease. Have you always been like that? Uh, Mum said to me very early on in life that um, the most important things in life you'll ever have are, are manners, and guess what? They're the cheapest, and she's absolutely right. So people think I'm intimidating because they see this kind of bullshit on TV. And um, that's just cleverly edited programming that uh, is to scare the life out of you. I wanted to ask you about swearing. I mean, you right. started your career as, as a sweary chef. Uh, yeah. You were very famous for that. But uh, Tilly says that you never swear at home. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, listen, you know, I don't boast about swearing. It's just an industry language. Journalists, doctors, uh, you know, uh, policemen, policewoman, uh, everybody swears. And so even our queen swears. And so there's just sometimes um, to get it straight to the point and off your chest, you know, the word fuck it uh, is one of the most beautiful words in the dictionary. And it's healthy, I think. But you made it into a finer art. I mean, well, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, mean uh, I suppose because of the programmes, um, I remember when Kitchen Nightmares went out and I had a phone call from the uh, commissioning editor the next morning and she said, fucking 5.8 million viewers. And I'm like, oh, what is all that about? 5.8 million what? And she said, it's just fucking brilliant. And, uh, you know, don't you dare have a fucking change. And every other word was fuck, 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 fuck. So I was like, oh, my God. I don't like swearing outside the kitchen because in front of kids um, and we present a children's program, I just say it's not cool to swear, but if you need to, get it out. Uh, it's a tough one because sometimes, you know, you need to get straight to the point. Yeah. Timmy Gordon, I wanted to, to ask you about your dad. Um, mm. you, you said in an interview once that he's never been into any of your restaurants. No. And what kind of relationship did you have with him? Um, that's a good question. So I had a tough relationship with dad because I wasn't the blue-eyed boy. Uh, my little brother was his sort of... The favourite? Uh, the favourite. Not, not just the favourite, but he sort of... He did the really naughty things. Do you know what I mean? He, he smoked, he uh -huh. drank, and, you know, he was very, uh, very naughty. So I was more a mum's boy as opposed to uh, with my dad. So the kind of relationship I had with him, it's a tough one because he died very young, you know, 53, and I just started standing on my own two feet. So in many ways, I wish I had the chance to cook for him. That didn't happen. He didn't even meet Megan uh, when she was just born, so he'd never met any of the kids, and he never met Tana. And the last big sort of discussion I had from him when I went to meet him in Margate, 
and he had an argument in Spain with his girlfriend. He threw all his stuff into the back of a, a white transit van. I had to meet him uh, at the pier in Margate, and I looked at him and said, Dad, you know, what's going on? All his knuckles were bruised, his eye was cut, and you know, he, hadn't, he, he, he didn't have a pot to piss in. Uh, I went to the bank, got some money out, and got him a flat that day, and we went and had breakfast the next morning. And the next morning at breakfast, um, it was two full English breakfast. And I said to the lady in the cafe, no fried toast for me. And she looked at me and said, sorry? I said, no fried bread. Because they literally get white bread and put it in deep fryer. Sure. And my dad turned around and said, you've turned into a snob. I said, sorry? He said, you've, got all, you've, you've changed. You're a snob. I said, no, dad, I just don't want to eat fried bread. Uh, if you can see the oil. He said, so there you go again. You want to complain about the oil? I said, yeah, but uh, it, it's saturating. And I, I don't want my arteries clogging up. Anyway. I took £2,000 out of my bank account. I left him in a, in a lower ground floor little basement flat, a one-bedroom flat. Uh, he was happy, secure, and uh, I felt really sad on the way back. And I'll say, I'll see you next week. Ten days later, it was like Christmas. And, you know, Christmas at our house was all so busy because you're working as a chef and it's a sort of busman's holiday. But on New Year's Eve, I remember getting this call at like half past two in the morning, and it was my dad's girlfriend literally, you know, two weeks after I saw him, and she was shouting at me, and I'm thinking that she's trying to wish me Happy New Year. I could all hear all these people in the background, and she was saying, I'm sorry, but your father's just died of a heart attack. And I'm like, jeez. I said, say that again? So anyway, um, I jumped in my car and shot down to the uh, hospital and met her there, which was really weird because she wasn't my mum. I'd only met this lady once, and um, she said, let's go through and see him. I said, no, I can't do that. I saw Dad two weeks ago. And so everything that I wanted to sort of, I suppose, make up for, we never got that chance because he didn't survive that heart attack. So the working relationship with him was a tough one. Do you talk to him in your head? Uh, no. I mean, I'm a firm believer in moving on because I have to. If I sat, I saw what happened to my little brother. He disintegrated, you know, got kicked out of the army, didn't actually get in, but on his way to becoming a soldier, and he got uh, kicked out for stealing. And then his life took a bad turn. He started drinking heavily and he started getting involved with drugs. And so... I mean, you're completely opposite. You and your brother. And yet you come from the same household. Uh, same bunk beds. You know, we, we were in a council flat in Stratford Avon and, and, you know, we were sort of... We never hated each other, but we just didn't get on because I was so sportive. And my, my life was about being clean and... So how and, does it work that you come from the same bunk bed and you are completely opposite? How do you explain that? Or can you or...? Yeah, I think it's very easy for me because when you grow up with nothing, I grew up... Uh, with nothing, and uh, I had a very humble upbringing, obviously loved by my mother, loved, I think, by my father. But what I was trying to say is that I I was desperate to get out the shit I was in. And so, you know, I didn't want to turn out like my dad. I didn't want to live in a council house. I didn't want to live and put my kids to school with secondhand clothes. And so I think we, you strive to, to better yourself and you fight beyond survival to do well. And once you're good at something you are truly passionate about, I never started cooking for money. Let's make that absolutely clear. No one said you're going to be a multimillionaire, you know, by the time you're 40 because you're a great chef. You don't start cooking to be rich. So I suppose I, it comes from bettering of what I grew up with. It wasn't a comfortable lifestyle. It was a very tough lifestyle. And I wanted to grow up out of the mess that I was born into. I mean, you work very hard now, but you've all, always worked out all your life. I mean, long hours in the kitchen now, you do long hours, you're doing television, you're traveling the world. I mean, people yes. think it's all glamour and fun, but it's not. It's just on the road. It's it's all the hard graft. Yeah, but I think... Um, Are you than, ever going to stop? Well, I think what I wake up with, uh, Fred, is a choice. Uh, I don't depend on anybody. 
I've never worried about money and I have enough money to, you know, live happy, happy after without having to work ever again. But what I thrived for was to wake up in the morning, have a choice to whether or not I want to do stuff as opposed to being told to be here because you've got to be there by seven and out by seven. So I wake up in the morning and I have a choice in life. And if that's the one thing I could put to everybody in this industry, strive, work hard for a choice. And the choice is being, getting to a certain level in life where you can wake up in the morning and say, yes, thank you or no thanks. Uh, and that's exactly the choice I have. So it may look somewhat chaotic and busy, but it's all very well organized uh, and it's taken me 10 years to get there. And I wake up in the morning with a big choice. Do I or don't I? And you do. And I do. Uh, and, 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 and I do what I love. And I run away from what I don't want to do because I don't have to do it anymore. So I think from a culinary perspective, I can't achieve anymore from a chef's point of view. I can maintain it. Uh, what gives me the greatest pleasure now is seeing young chefs coming through and giving them not just a slice of the action, but that scope, that platform and that, it's not fame. I hate that word fame. I mean, you all do... You hold the record with 21 years at the top of your game with three Michelin stars at Restaurant Gordon Ramsay. And yeah, nobody's month. done that before. No, this month. But then I think of the talent that's gone through there, from Marcus Waring to, to Mark Askew to Claire Smith to Matt Abbey. I mean, it's just uh, an endless string of talent. So, you know, when you get successful in life, it teaches you to be gracious and then unselfish. And unselfish is something I've always been. So, yeah, I was very bad at giving away everything when I was younger and saying yes to everything. And then all of a sudden you realize half the people you meet, you know, either want to you know, turn you over, screw you up uh, or have what you've got. But one thing they'll never have is my insight and palate and finesse on a plate. So uh, honestly, if it all went tits up tomorrow, please don't worry about me. This podcast is brought to you in association with Expedia. Now, you all know that I like things in my life to run smoothly. At work, in my restaurant, at home, and especially when I am away traveling. Expedia offers loads of great deals on flights, activities, and accommodation all in one place. So you can book your trip, save money, and ensure everything runs as smoothly as my life. Oh la la! Is it important, the Michelin stars, for you? How important are they for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Michelin, for me, is an enormous guide um, that is there for the public. And it's a, a guide that no one gets to wine and dine. I've seen food critics, editors, and even certain uh, editors of newspapers come and take a backhander or to get a free dinner or to get a free... And so Michelin don't put up with any of that bullshit. It's a guide that is purely for the public. I mean, for some chef, for example, you know, Bernard Loiseau, for example, yeah. I mean, committed suicide when he lost his, his Michelin star. Yeah, that's not oh, all. The chef gets so stressed. Yeah, How I, do you feel about yeah, that? I, I, yeah, there's two things going on here. Um, the sort of stress level is sad, and I don't think any guide is worth taking a life. Let's make that clear. Uh, I think France, we, the Gourmet Guide was the one that Mr. Loiseau was upset about, but... The Michelin thing for me, I categorize it. As a football player, you want to win a, a FA Cup, win a medal, or play for your country. As an actor, you want to win an Oscar. And as a chef, you want to win a star. So get the guides, uh, say thank you, and then the next day is all back to basics. But um, in terms of the sort of pressure, pressure's healthy, right? It's just how you deal with it. So, you know, at this level of perfection, if you're not uh, on your game, then don't play in a league you're not comfortable at. I love playing at the Premier League. and um, But you play in different leagues. I mean, you've got four shows on Fox broadcast in 200 different territories. Yes. I mean, this is as big as you can make it in the States. I mean, this is just incredible. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, here's the thing. I'm not a boaster, and so I... Um, but you don't need to boast because the figures, uh, yeah, everything I mean, talks for themselves. Yeah, we've just gone through a, a second billionth view on YouTube, and that's pretty phenomenal. But I think what I was trying to say earlier is that crack in America uh, is not an overnight success. You know, I've been here for the last 15 years, and so I live between L.A. and London, and um, uh, any other time in between that is in a bloody airplane. But no other chefs have ever done that. I mean, when we went to Vegas, you yes. are on all the billboards. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, being in Piccadilly Circus, I mean, because Las Vegas is like a big Piccadilly Circus, and the, your picture is everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I, here's the thing. I mean, I... Um, How do you cope with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I stay normal, I think. I get a little bit intimidated if I'm with the kids and I'm, I'm trying to eat and, and they're interrupted every two minutes, doing a picture or a, a photograph with a fan. Yeah, that's all great. And uh, I, I hide in Cornwall. I, I descend to Cornwall. I go for swims and big long runs on the beach um, and absolutely let my hair down. So um, it's popularity through graft and what you deliver on customers' plates as opposed to... Uh, in my mind, uh, being famous because you're, uh, you're a recognised face. That's the important bit for me. The thing that's interesting for me is that people don't know you. They see you on television. They know you as swearing. They see that you're on television in the States. You've got Michelin stars. You've got a big personality, and yet they don't know you. They know Gordon Ramsay on television or yes. as a chef, but they don't know Gordon. No. And you're a very kind and very generous man. If people only knew how generous you were, I think they would have a very different view of you. So yeah. is there a difference between Gordon Ramsay and Gordon? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose, um, listen, you know, I wake up in the morning and realise you can't keep everybody happy. If you think you do, then you're dreaming. And so I've always said, well, don't like that programme, use the control and turn it over. Don't like that food, go to a different restaurant. So I, um, I put my jacket on in the kitchen, then that's it, I'm in the zone. I am absolutely in that dressing room and no one is going to mess with the standards that I'll uh, dictate. Outside of that, uh, yeah, I'm a dad of five. Um, and oh, tell funny. me about that. I mean, that must be all Allah. I mean, your new son, Oscar, is what, yeah. six months old? Six months old, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, amazing. And I think also being as busy as I was when the twins were born and Meg and, uh, and Tilly, you know, listen, I spent time, but it was limited time. And I'm convinced now that I'm going to spend way more time with Oscar. And I think it's a hard blow when you have that new arrival um, and all of a sudden your life stops again. But I'm excited to be even more hands-on, I think, now, or travel with me and, and, and have fun with him. You think you're going to be a different father than the one you were 20 years ago for the um, other kids? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know about different. I think I'll be there more because what I want... physically present? Yeah, present, yeah. If not, then we'll travel together in terms of... So, listen, the time I had, like any chef, the time is limited because it's it, it, you're working five nights a week um, and the time I have with the kids is quality, but short, and so you value that time. But listen, the kids are in a great place. They're all doing exceptionally well and working incredibly hard, so it's not as if they've been sat there pining for their but dad. But you've got a very good relationship with your kids. Uh, yeah. I remember the twins' birthday party last year. Yeah, amazing. I mean, the relationship that you have with the children, yeah. with Stana, I mean, this is yeah. something that, that people should be inspired with, I think. Yeah, I just said to the kids, you know... Life is about ups and downs. And the quicker you tell me, the more I can help. The less you tell me, the less I can help. So I've asked them to find their passion. It's not about money or wills or thinking they're going to get rich. If they find their passion in life, uh, everything else will fall into place. So that kind of insight. And I want to be the father to them that my father wasn't to me. So if I can skip a generation, you know, help lay a new platform going forward for them, then I think at the end of the day, my job's going to be done. 
Oh, great. I wanted to ask you, Gordon, do mm. you believe in love at first sight? I remember 21 years ago, coming back from Joe Robichon, uh, flying into the airport and my friend picking me up to go to our mate's wedding. And I sat in the back of this shitty Golf GTI, uh, which was, you know, basically falling apart. He was just more excited about the GTI part. And I sat in the back of this car after coming on a little short flight thinking, oh my God, can't wait to get to Darren's wedding. And I looked in the mirror and there was this girl that has curly hair, hazel eyes, absolutely gorgeous. And I sat in the back of this car thinking, holy shit, she is fucking gorgeous. And that was love at first sight. Unfortunately, it was my mate's girlfriend. But would you believe three years and 10 months later, I married her and that was my wife, Tana. So yes, I do believe in love at first sight. So tell me about the first day you met her. How no, did you all start? It, it was a bit awkward because it was my mate's girlfriend. So I can't get too much detail. This but we did all la la, Gordon. Well, it, it was that all la <laughs> moment. But I sat in the entire journey. I was like, shit, Tim, how did you bag that? Did she feel the same about you? Well, I couldn't ask her because in the back of the fucking car. No, but, but did you ask her afterwards? I did. She did. Yeah, she said I got her tingly in a way that. But we had to wait a couple of years because I had to go back to France, finish my studies and then come back. And open my restaurant. So yeah, I keep on reminding her then that was love at first sight, without a doubt. She was 19, I was 26, and it was that moment. I looked in the mirror and thought, ooh la la. Oh my God, that's a great <laughs> love story. <laughs> Jamie Gordon, I've asked you to bring a quote. Yes. Um, so what's your quote? Quote for food, life. For life in general, something that would encapsulate you, something that you believe in, something that make you that make you tick, something that you think, this is me. Yeah. If I was reading that phrase, that's yeah. Gordon. The secret to success is staying out of your comfort zone. The more vulnerable you are, the better you look. Really? Is it what you've all done all your life? Every time I get something that's utterly perfect, I'll rip it up and start again. Because that journey back up is way more exciting than sitting at the top. Do you think you will always do that? I've done it for the last 21 years, and so far, it's worked brilliantly. Are you ever going to retire? I'm 52 years of age. If I retire, I'd like to start a new career and become a racing driver. <laughs> because <yeah. laughs> because I love pushing things to the limit. Do you? And, you know, everyone thinks it's a, an egotistical thing because you have a collection of Ferraris. It's not for me. It's that level of connect to perfection. And I drive my Ferraris on a track. And when I absolutely push that boundary, I know I'm at max. And if I'm going around a corner or flat line speed at 208 miles an hour, I know damn well I'm that close to fucking the whole thing up. And that's what drives me to the edge. That excites you? That excites me more than anything. Really? 100%. So could you take part in any race? Do you take part in racing? I'm a little bit too big now to fit in a Formula One. Maybe not Formula One, but you but could do the Baja 400, for I, example. I, or... If we do the Baja 400, as you well know, fingers crossed, we'll finish the fucking course. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, you started a foundation with Stana. Yes. Um, I, I worked Cancer Research, the foundation, for five years, and then we had... Uh, we set up this foundation for the Great Almond Street Children's Hospital that's been running now for the last four years. And uh, literally uh, a year ago, we went past our first net uh, million pound. We have three events every year, uh, triathlons and a velodrome. Uh, and it's just about making sure the kids understand they're blessed and giving back to the hospital for lesser fortunate kids. So the children get involved in it as part of their routine now. And 
even after Tan and I are gone, I'd still like to think the kids will continue that foundation because they're blessed to be fit and healthy and need to give back to those that are lesser fortunate. I mean, talking about fitness, um, yes. you are very fit and you're yes. looking so solid at, at, at your age. I think it's amazing. But uh, you were not always like that. I mean, once upon a time, you were overweight and yeah. you got into running. Yeah. But in, you didn't do just running. You went and did Ironman. Yeah. How did you, I mean, yeah. did you start I, that from scratch, from from nothing really? No, I mean, I was a fat chef once. Uh, I think when you get consumed in this business, um, if you don't find time to yourself, then it swallows you up. And I remember my father-in-law saying to me, dude, you know, you're running a restaurant, you need to be the face of the business, get your shit together. And so he gave me an entrant for the marathon. We entered it in January and ran the London Marathon four months later. Uh, I've done over 13 London Marathons now, 15 worldwide and five ultra marathons and seven Ironmen. And going to that next level was getting time out and taking yourself away from the business and having a think time. Doing a 220K ride on a bike is a process for me in a way that I can absolutely process everything in my wheelhouse and come back, edit it and, and, and focus. So that level of fitness has not only turned my life around, but given me that perspective in a way that getting sucked in is not the smart way in business. Now that I have that discipline between swimming, running and biking, I can go and do that anywhere in the world and get myself out of the business. So how did you find the time though? Because you're running multiple businesses. Yeah across multiple continents. Yep. I mean, how yep. do you do that? How do you split um, your time? Make time, a great team. And then um, I think if there's one thing I've learned from an early age in life is to delegate. Uh, and, and it's all very well, you know, paying great bonuses and shareholders money, etc. But if they want to size the action, the responsibility needs to be on their shoulders. So I think you'll see my team are under, if not the same, more pressure than I'm under. Really? Mm -hmm. How did you make the decision to go from London to Los Angeles? Because mm -hmm. it must have been a big decision for you. Mm -hmm. and, and when did you make that decision? Why did you make that decision? Um, so I didn't sort of uplift and move all the family there because the kids were in amazing schools and it was just an amazing opportunity career-wise. I think the secret behind that was I, I love LA. I don't think I could live there full-time and bounce what, in between. What made you do that? Well, I mean, um, ITV... Was it strategic? Uh, no, ITV, we went live with Hell's Kitchen and then all of a sudden, you know, literally a week after it aired, it was such a success that the US network Fox were on the phone. I was a little bit dubious about working in America because I wasn't quite ready for it because my business wasn't fully settled in the UK. I came over uh, and I I took to it like duck to water. And so Tan and I said, look, this is a big commitment. What do we do? Anyway, um, we bought a house uh, in Bel Air Crest and then that made life so much easier. So, you know, some people go to work on the bus, some people catch the train. Uh, I literally will jump to Heathrow on a Sunday night with my bag. I catch the bus, I catch the bus back to LA. I'll finish filming on a Friday night uh, and I'll jump back on the bus again and land Saturday morning back in the UK. So I suppose, I know it's not gonna last forever, but whilst that work is there and that kind of excitement is there and we're building out the restaurants here as well, it's a win-win. What is it like to get all this love from all these people? Because we go in the street, we walk down anywhere, people come out and they scream your name. They say mm. they love you, they want a picture with you. They are inspired by you. Do you remember when we were in uh, San Diego where this taxi driver who, uh, who was saying that he was quoting you all the time and yes. uh, you were his hero, literally yeah. his hero. He couldn't believe his luck that you were in the same taxi as his. Uh, listen, I, I don't walk around and uh, lord that. Uh, it's embarrassing, to be honest. I try to give as much as I can back to them. But if they only knew how normal I was outside of their screen in their home, it would be a different matter. 
but it's lovely, um, but it gets a little bit overwhelming sometimes because I don't like causing a disturbance. I want to go in, eat my dinner, get out and go home. I mean, I've got a confession to make. I mean, I've been inspired by you years ago, 12 years ago. You may not know it. I was reading no, I your book, Playing With Fire. Yes. And there was a, a, a very small piece about charity where you said, you know, I get letters all the time to support charities and it's just getting too much. So I decided to focus on my own thing and do my charity. Yes. And when I read that, I thought, this is true. This is what I need to do too. I need to set up my own charity. And this is when I started to work with disadvantaged children. And this wow. is how I ended up uh, setting up the right course. But if it wasn't for reading your book and what you said, I wow. probably wouldn't have done it. So I didn't what you, I didn't know that about you, Fredo. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that before? I would have donated to your charity. Just part of the conversation. I just remember this wow. is what happened 12 years ago when I read wow. your book. Well, that's amazing. It was, it was a big moment. Well, good for you. Thank you. Gordon, it was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing you in London. Merci, mon ami. Merci. The podcast was brought to you in association with Expedia. Expedia offers thousands of hotel deals to suit all tastes and budgets. Choose from bed and breakfast, affordable hostels, five-star hotels, and everything in between. There is something for everyone.